Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the Sectarianism, Proxies, and Desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Guy Burton. Guy is an adjunct professor at Vesalius College in Brussels, and he's also visiting fellow at the LSE Middle East Centre. Guy's written about a range of, of quite interesting yet um, not necessarily linked things. So I'm really curious to know about the the relationships between the various parts of his work from Israel-Palestine, the Arab-Israeli conflict, to his more recent work on China, which is very exciting. So Guy, thank you so much for joining us today. So Guy, can yeah. you tell me what is it about the Middle East that, that piqued your interest and prompted an interest in it uh, intellectually? Mm-hmm. So I finished my PhD at the LSC back at the in 2009, and uh, I had actually specialised on Latin American politics at the time, um, and really I found myself sort of moving towards the Middle East. I'd visited the place in the past before, uh, but then it was at the beginning of 2010 that I had was I was offered an opportunity to to come out to Birzeit University in Palestine, um, where originally initially they wanted me to look at uh, development issues and issues relating to to development for for Palestinians. And um, in the course of that uh, that, that research project, they they started to ask me to look at uh, the role of sort of non-traditional donors, because obviously Palestine is a place where there is a lot of uh, involvement by by donors in the aid community. Sure. And they wanted me to look at sort of non-traditional donors, and that got me sort of looking at not just uh, sort of Arab donors, but also because of the time, it was a time in which the bricks were rising. And so I was, I, I used my knowledge of, of Latin America and, and started looking at Brazil. And that kind of snowballed somewhat. So it got, it moved me on to starting to th- ask questions, not just about Brazil and Latin America, but about these other rising powers more generally. And that kind of led to my, led me uh, down the path to, to doing some work looking at the BRICS and the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, but of course, within the BRICS itself, there is a considerable amount of interest in the role of China. And that's that's really where I've sort of been spending the last couple of years um, working on. Fantastic. That's, that's really interesting to know your, your avenue into this. Uh, be- before the PhD, though, Guy, what was your, what was your undergraduate? And, and had, you, had you actually spent any time out in the Middle East before your trip to Berzait? Yes. I mean, when I, so, I mean, I came to my PhD a little bit late. I started it at the end of my 20s, having uh, worked, you know, in the political uh, system back in the UK, um, in Parliament and in local government, and then sort of realised that lobbying was sort of the natural next course, and it really wasn't for me. I mean, I'd always been interested in, in, in political science and, and international relations and the, and the study of it, making sense of it. Um, and I actually studied in, in the Middle East, sorry, at the LSE as well as an undergraduate back in the mid-90s. And it was during that time uh, that I spent a summer, you know, traveling around uh, the Middle East, uh, primarily sort of Lebanon and Syria and Turkey. And that kind of whetted the appetite a bit. But then I sort of got sidetracked partly because of, you know, other interests. Um, but what brought me back to this was sort of a trip to Israel and Palestine in 2007-8, um, which with the opportunity that that was presented by Beers 8, you know, enabled me to sort of come back and actually invest more sort of, you know, intellectual capital there. Right. Okay. That's it's fascinating. Really, really interesting. Uh, particularly this, this idea that 
that you'd been at the coalface of, of politics before getting into uh, academia. I just wonder, Guy, did, did that experience shape your, your intellectual outlook, do you think? Did, did that experience in Parliament and, and with, with local governance aid your, your intellectual inquiry, do you think? Well, I mean, it gives me a, a certain perspective. I, I, so I guess I, I look and understand a bit sort of the challenges and the trade-offs that politicians themselves face. So, I mean, I know that your 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 podcast is primarily for people who are concerned about SIPAD um, and, and uh, the Middle East. But I mean, if you're thinking about sort of British politics and given what we know about sort of the current situation with Brexit, I can understand why politicians find it difficult to try and balance the, the demands of their constituencies on one side with their, you know, their own you know, inter particular preferences on the other. And I found, I found that incredibly useful when I was doing my own research, because, you know, at the time I would sometimes say to supervisors, look, you know, in a way we get to be a little bit pure because we get to sort of sit on the outside and critique and analyze. But the truth is, is that when you're working, you know, in politics, you have to make these choices. And so sometimes there's often a tendency to sort of paper over differences that exist within a political party or between particular positions. Um, so it is. A, I mean, I think it's useful, but I, I mean, it's not a, not an area that I thought that I personally would want to sort of stay in for for a long term. But I think it's it's definitely useful to have that perspective because it gives you an, a sort of an added insight into how into how politicians operate. Yeah, certainly, and I, I think that's so really important. That idea of of we can speak to to normative concerns or the concerns of of real politics politicians are fundamentally concerned with with their own constituencies as well and balancing the two i think is is really important but also incredibly easily forgotten mm. so uh, yeah i think that, that's really interesting uh, guy you did the phd you went to buzz eight and and you you started pushing into this this new line of intellectual inquiry then so what mm. did you pick up in terms of the the role of the BRICS in in the middle east yeah. I mean, at the time, I guess partly because I wasn't sure, you know, I, I was caught in two minds when I first moved to Beers 8. I mean, certainly I was interested in this particular uh, opportunity that was presented to to work on Palestinian issues and sort of the Middle East more generally. But I still sort of, I guess at the time, still sort of might saw myself as a little bit of a Latin Americanist. So I was also very lucky that I arrived at a time when um, Latin, you know, sort of BRICS and Latin America was at a high point. I guess this was sort of the tide of the sort of the the high point of the of the the political left. And if you think about, you know, sort of the people like President Lula, he had he was the Brazilian president. He he'd just been in Palestine, you know, a couple of weeks before I arrived. They'd even renamed the street near the Kutmukata, uh, near sort of the, the the Palestinian government compound after Brazil. And it was also, you know, a few months after the Venezuelans and Bolivians had actually. Uh, you know, broken relations with Israel, partly because of the 2008-9 uh, conflict down in Gaza. Um, so there was a sort of a real interest at the time. Oh, and I, I also recall uh, the, my first day walking into the Beers 8 office and seeing a colleague of mine had a big poster of uh, Hugo Chavez speaking to the masses, which right. struck me, which really surprised me because it was very different. I said to my expected, you know, I would imagine you to normally have a picture of, um, you know, Che Guevara up there. He said, no, 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 we've modernized. So, <laughs> so there was this sort of sense at the time of sort of Latin America was pertinent. Um, and so it really it did stimulate some, some, some interest there. But, you know, I just realized there was a point that, you know, there was only so much that the Latin Americans could do. Um, and 
you know, I also, so from that, I started broadening it out to looking at the BRICS more generally. Um, you know, the Russians obviously had a presence in Israel with the, with, with sort of the arrival of so many migrants, which obviously had political salience. Uh, but at the same time, the Russians had also, you know, under Putin sort of talked about being more uh, sympathetic towards the Palestinian position. So there seemed to be this sort of tension at work there. Um, India itself had, uh, you know, sort of undergone um, more sort of involvement with, with both Israel and the Palestinians. And, and of course, you know, South Africa at the time, um, you know, there was this was a few years after the boycott, divestment and sanction movement had, had emerged. And of course, their point of reference was what had happened in South Africa under apartheid. So you had a lot of a sort of interest and attention within Palestinian society as to what, you know, what had happened in South Africa, how they could make, you know, you know, how they could operationalize this, the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa and make it applicable to Palestine. So all of these different sort of currents and trends sort of stimulated me to look at, at, uh, at what, what had been, what was going on in, in Israel and Palestine. And of course, I think this was also at a time where um, we were starting to see sort of, I guess, you know, sort of the, the relative decline of the United States as the dominant power post-Iraq, uh, post the financial crisis, the emergence of these other other actors. But as I started to dig more, I started to realize that actually this wasn't um, the, the, the rising powers uh, in the Middle East or the, specifically the Arab-Israeli conflict for the first time. I mean, these countries did have history with this part of the world. Yeah, and, course, and, yeah. and so I think a lot of what I'm, I'm doing is actually just sort of, you know, bringing that history back uh, into the light and sort of providing some context, some historical context as to, you know, the state of emerging powers, the state of non-traditional, uh, non-Western countries uh, and their governments in relation to the Arab-Israeli conflict, uh, as well as the Middle East. It's really, really genuinely very interesting and and something that I, I know very little about because it's it's as you you say so often underexplored and and lacks this this contextual uh, engagement I guess. So, guy, it strikes me that that there's this this historical set of engagement between the um, the Arab Israel context um, and and also these these non-Western rising powers that you talk about, but. But there seems to be, perhaps it's just my knowledge here, but a big gap between the historical engagement, and we know that, that Brazil in particular played a really prominent role in in the formative aspect of, of UN work on, on the conflict and more mm-hmm. contemporary issues. So so what's the, the missing gap? Is there a, a set of, of engagements that took place over the, the intermittent decades, if you will? Mm. I mean, I think if you, I mean, if you, you alluded to Brazil, and certainly yes, I mean, the Brazilians were at the forefront, and at least in terms of, you know, uh, chairing the debates and discussions around the the partition debate back in 1947-48. I mean, the uh, what's interesting is if you look, go back. I mean, at the time when when uh, the ninth the partition plan was being was, was being talked about, Latin America accounted for a significant amount of the uh, non-Western, non-global North. Um, uh, you know, representation in the United Nations. I mean, they they were the sizable number, and so a lot of so both the Jewish agency as well as the Arabs were lobbying the the Latin Americans for you know their particular preference when it came to that. Um, then, of course, in the years that followed, you have in sort of the night after Bandung in 1955, you have the emergence of kind of the third world and countries like India and China, you know, setting their stall as you know, being independent of the West and the East, 
presenting themselves as an alternative. Um, what's what's quite striking in this period, though, as well, is that you know the the, the Cold War itself doesn't really come to um, to, to the Arab-Israeli conflict at least until sort of the late until the 50s, 60s, um, and so when it does. Uh, you have these these countries, especially India and China, being very critical against Israel, which is identified on the on with, with the Western camp, and very pro-Arab, um, pro-pro-Palestinian. I mean, even the Chinese were you know providing in this very and this is obviously in the context of the Cultural Revolution and 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 Mao Zedong being in power. You know, this was a, a fairly sort of radical revolutionary foreign policy. So even in this in sort of the the mid to late sixties, they were. Helping uh, provide, you know, sort of both diplomatic cover as well as sort of small arms assistance to the PLO. Right. And, and this is somewhat forgotten now because when you think about the Chinese today, you know, they emphasise that they are primarily about commercial relations, um, you know, maintaining diplomatic relations, not interfering in the domestic policies of, of countries that they 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 engage and interact with. Um, and of course, this is a this is a present presentation of of life today, but. It has to be set in context with what went on in the past. Yeah, of course. And I think that's so very important, that contextualization. Guy, I must at this point, I think, mention your book, mm. your, your Lexington yeah. book, which you were so kind to give me a copy of it at Brisma's <laughs> earlier this year. And I've gone through it uh, and thoroughly enjoyed it. I've learned a great deal. This is an area that, that I really don't know enough about, and it's so insightful. So I, I should just give it a very quick plug now. So the book is called Rising Powers and the Arab-Israeli Conflict since 1947. It came out with Lexington uh, last year, I believe. Yes. Excellent. So it's a wonderful book. It it goes into these these issues in more detail, and, and it's so, so well written, so informative. I really can't speak highly of it. Uh, enough. So um, do get hold of a copy if you've not already done so. Guy, I'd oh, like to... Kind of oh, not at all. I mean, it, it really is fascinating. And it's it's an area that that I think has largely been overlooked, particularly that historical mm. context. I mean, we, we know that people are talking about the role of, of some of these, these um, brick states nowadays, but it's not a new phenomena, as you correctly assert. And mm. you, you do that in such a such a fascinating and timely way. But Guy, I'd like to move away from, from Latin America, if I will, if I can, and, yeah. and just touch on some of the other actors involved in the, in the BRICS then. So I, I assume your intellectual interest in this just emerged out of the, the stuff that you were doing on, on development in Palestine and the, uh, and, and the broader sort of BRIC reflections at the time. Would that, is that fair to say? Yes, and I mean, I think it's obviously. I, initially, I was in in Beer Zeit and I was there for two years, and it was during that time that I saw things like um, there was a sports centre down in in Ramallah, which was you know help, which was financed by the you know the 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 tripartite of of Brazil, India, and South Africa. So you started to see the presence of these different um, you know of, of them trying to make a presence you know there. But then also I, I moved away after uh, back in 2012. I then moved on. I took a, I took a year where I, I, t I was working in, um, you know, in the Kurdish region of Iraq. Uh, and then more recently, I, I've spent a couple of years working in, 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 the, in uh, the Mohammed bin Rashid School of Government in, in Dubai. And so that, I think, sort of added to my, 
you know, to my understanding and interest in sort of these emerging and rising powers, because especially when you go to to, to the Gulf, for example, uh, the presence of India or Indians is very visible, right? Yeah. They, are, they are a significant uh, con- contributor, both in terms of sort of labor as well as um, a, a source of source of remittances back to the, to, to India. And also, you know, in parts of Dubai, you now have a growing Chinese uh, community as well as sort of uh, economic activity. So, you know, this sort of prompted me, to, and at least is sort of shaping a, quite a bit of the work that I'm now doing, which is to to look at the role of, you know, sort of the BRIC, well, emerging powers, but more specifically these BRICS countries in relation to, uh, you know, to the wider Middle East. And I think it's also been motivated somewhat as well by, you know, the the Arab uprising itself. Um, this is sort of the, the the changes that have happened in 2011 were not just domestic. I mean, we now see sort of, I guess, at the international level, uh, the region in a period of flux. Um, and it's not just sort of regional actors like the Saudis, the, the Gulf actors and, and Turkey uh, that ha- are trying to exploit the situation, but also outside powers as well. So we've seen, for example, especially since the since late 2015, you know, sort of the Russian decision to directly intervene in the Syrian conflict, which I think, you know, based if we look at what the some of the sort of the emerging media commentary over the last year or year or so has emphasised that this Syri- this presence of Russia in Syria seems to be sort of enabling it to uh, present itself as as a key as a growing player in in, in the region more generally mm. it's interesting hearing those those different types of experiences and i think that that's really mm. important to stress that that this is this is a multifaceted multi-causal uh multi-spatial if you will set of relations right and that India's relations mm-hmm. with the Gulf yeah. differ depending on the different Gulf states involved, but also uh, those relations differ from India to Pakistan to to Russia to China, etc. So there's a, a range of different types of of relations that are at play that I imagine are are also coloured by the relations between the different states themselves. In mm-hmm. that the the yeah. emergent powers have their own own tensions and rivalries that shape how they interact in the Middle East. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's I, I think we, you know, we can sort of I think there's been a lot of emphasis, I would say, you know, recently to sort of highlight sort of the commercial, or the economic side of, of, of this of the relationship that these that these states have. Um, I mean, obviously, the big one with China is obviously the Belt and Road, which has been, you know, was was launched in 2013, primarily initially in Central Asia, but in the last few years has started to gain a lot more attention and traction within the Middle East. And um, that's also prompted sort of uh, other actors who have a who have relations in the Middle East to to, to raise questions about what that what their role should also be. So you have the Indians also looking with, with nothing as sort of clear clear or you know as strategic as Belt and Road, but sort of the Indian government talking about sort of you know developing its relationships with with these states and also in, in relation to business as well as with their diasporas which are, are based out there. You know the Japanese to a certain extent have also talked about that, although that's somewhat you know beyond my ken. Um, <laughs> I guess the difference would be somewhere like Russia, which is, you know, it's not it's not so I guess its interest is less less concerned about sort of commercial interests and more about strategic ones um, and, and having influence. Although that's sometimes one of the points that sort of frustrates me about the debate the disc- and discussion that's going on, which is what the influence for what purpose, to what end? Um, I think that's something that we, we probably need to work and, and develop, you know, harder as, as analysts, uh, what we mean by this. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's right. And it's, it's prompted some really uh, important questions, I think, just that, that little bit of, of answer. Um, Guy, you've written around a number of these aspects in a range of articles and book chapters, and we can, we can post links to some of them uh, after the podcast is out. But I wonder if you can just quickly sort of, as a potted history, if you will, tell us about the, the interests and the, the type of activities that these states are involved in, perhaps. For example, what is it that, that India hopes to achieve in the Middle East and, and what are they doing? And, and China, we know about one, the Belt and Road Initiative, but what's the point of that? If you could yeah. just talk us through that, yeah. I think that'd be really useful. Sure. I mean, I think the the thing about I mean, the one that's gained so you know particular interest in the last few years has been China's Belt and Road, um, and and so I guess the you know this was first launched in 2013, so it's now six years, um, and it was initially launched uh, in in Kazakhstan, uh, and then about a month later, it there was a sort of a maritime com- component associated with it. And um, now the interesting thing about Belt and Road is that it's not a sort of it's not a plan as such, and, and the Chinese are very cautious about calling it a plan. It's more a vision, uh, and they call it an initiative. Um, and the idea is that you know countries you know will put forward put themselves forward to partner up with the Chinese to to develop what are effectively going to be you know massive infra- infrastructure pro- projects. So we're looking at sort of developing up developing and upgrading transport links like roads, railways, ports. Um, you know, across both Central Asia as well as you know, uh, connecting you know East Asia and the Pacific through the Indian Indian Ocean and, and towards the West. Now, the reason questions have been asked as to what is the purpose of Belt and Road? Why all of this? Um, and, and in some, there's both sort of domestic as well as external uh, reasons for it. So domestically, um, the Chinese economy is starting to slow down a little bit. Um, and so the, China, the Chinese government is looking at opportunities and trying to encourage uh, domestic firms to, to continue to look and to, to, ex, to, to explore you know, external possibilities, foreign possibilities to attract contracts, to, con- to continue to stimulate business, really. So if they can't get business at home, to do it abroad. Um, and so and then also at the same time, there's this desire to try and um, develop uh, parts of the country. Um, if we look at the last 40 years of Chinese economic development, it's really been sort of the, the maritime coastal regions that have benefited more than the, 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 in, the interior and the peripheral regions. And if we think about the peripheral regions, we're thinking the southwest, we're thinking the north, northwest, the northwest, which is uh, near the area of Xinjiang, uh, and which is, has, has a strong, you know, Turkic Muslim minority, the Uyghurs. And then, of course, the sort of from an external perspective, there's two things. I think it's to, on the one hand, to develop these kind of, uh, to help develop and build up these um, economies that are next door to these poorer regions. If, they, if the Chinese are going to build up Xinjiang or Guilin, they also want the places on the other side of the border to be developed. So this is an opportunity for Chinese businesses and firms to enter into that market. At the same time, building these these this infrastructure is meant to link up with um, sort of the more sort of high value added markets at the end at the other end, basically Europe, right? Right. So um, this is an opportunity to you know to sort of get tra- get goods and services over from from China to the mid to through the Middle East into Europe more more quickly. Now, of course, that means then you know the, the beauty of the Belt and Road is that it's pretty general. So yeah, you know, it's it's sort of 
offers an opportunity for any for any com- country uh, com- governments to sort of connect up with it. And so in the Middle East as well, this has also sort of stimulated some interest as well in, in developing certain parts of the Middle East, um, but also sort of not just uh, developing in, in terms of, you know, physical infrastructure, but also acting as a vector for further economic activity. So I guess it's uh, what's interesting, I think, about the Middle East and, and the Belt and Road is that it will not necessarily be um, the whole region being treated equally. Some economies, some countries are going to do better out of it than others. And I think you're going to, you're going to see that it's countries like the Gulf, which are sort of being prioritized uh, by the Chinese. Um, and certainly, um, there's there's talk about there is there's currently developments in building up places like the Dukum port in Oman, um, you know, building up sort of links with with the Saudi with the Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE. Um, I think if you want to get a sense of where the Chinese consider a priority in the Middle East, it's where they have what they call co- comprehensive strategic partnerships, and they effectively have them with Algeria, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Iran. And so these are the countries that they consider to be the most important, the most significant, uh, the areas that they're most going to want to uh, to engage in, you know, moving yeah. forward. Okay. So that's that's China. But you also asked about India. Yeah. Before we get to India, may I just ask you, though, I mean, your your last point about these these areas of strategic interest contains both Saudi Arabia mm. and Iran. Is there any any issue with that or are the Chinese able to to balance against the interests of both? Absolutely, and this is the thing. This is the thing that the Chinese have been very um, adept at doing over the last few years. Um, it's it's quite it's quite striking to notice how they have tried to sort of keep both the Saudis and the Iranians, you know, on board. Um, the obviously the relationship that the that the that the that the Chinese have with the Iranians is not. Obviously, it's much more favorable, um, in t- especially when you compare it to, say, the United States and the West, which is a much more fractious relationship with, with Iran. But at the same time, you know, it's also got to be set in context that the Chinese don't see their relationship with Iran uh, as independent. You know, they sort of weigh it up and measure it up with their relationship with the United States. So, um, you know, in the past, they've sort of, you know, oscillated from, you know, being very warm to being somewhat cooler. So in the period between 1997 and around 2010, the period where we saw sort of a rise of sanctions against Iran, the Chinese were, you know, quite reticent about um, being too pro-Iranian at that point. Um, at the same time, they also want to cultivate the Saudis. And so in a way, they saw this, them establish uh, comprehensive strategic partnerships with both countries back in 2016. Um, and they've also taken had a tendency to sort of step back when it comes to issues of, of controversy and tension between the two countries. And um, what's been very striking over the over the summer is sort of obviously the ratcheting, ratcheting up of, a, of tension between um, the United States and Iran. You know, the over the over over the, the the JCPOA, the Chinese have been somewhat uh, non not involved in all of this. They've they've emphasised the importance of you know the two sides getting to the table and resolving issues, but they don't they tend not to mediate. So, but but at the same time, I think there is also an element, um, and I think this is an area of, of of research and interest that that we're starting to see moving forward um, of how the the Chinese are portrayed. Um, there's effectively this 
the sense that you can project onto the Chinese what, what you like. And there's a very good piece that was recently been done by Andrea Giselli and Mohammed Al-Suderi, who are looking at the Chinese in relation to Syria and its reconstruction. And I think it's something similar in relation, it could be seen in, in relation to China and Iran. But in the case of this China and Syria, the last few years, what with the 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 coming to the end of the war in Syria. There's been some talk as to who's going to help help with the reconstruction of, of that country. Um, the World Bank in 2017 calculated at around 240 billion uh, to rebuild the country. Um, at that, there's no way the United States and the West is going to be involved so long as Assad remains in power. Yeah. Um, as for the Russians and Iranians, who are the primary uh, partners of the, of the Syrians, there's no way that they have that kind of money uh, to, to make available. What The only people who have been... But then at the same time, what we've seen is the Syrian government's been very much emphasizing you know, their friendship and their solidarity and support for, with the Chinese and seeing the Chinese as a potential partner for this reconstruction. Now, what's interesting is that the Chinese themselves don't overplay it. The Syrians seem to be overplaying it. The, the Chinese allow, have seemed to have sort of stepped back and allowed this um, attention to, to sort of, you know, waft over them. Um, so, of course, they've sort of gained this kind of status in, in the international community as sort of the potential rebuilders of Syria. However, if I point out to you that in uh, 20, yeah, so t July 2018, when the Chinese met with the, the their most recent bilateral meeting with the Arab League, um, President Xi Jinping announced 23 billion for Belt and Road projects for the entire Arab world. So that's a far, that's a that's a long way off what the World Bank is hmm. is calculating. Yeah, interesting. So what about India then, guy? Mm. Yeah. So this is an area that I'm sort of increasingly, increasingly um, trying to develop as a, as, as, as a line of inquiry. And I think um, you have obviously, and I think this is an area that certainly also needs so some, some greater work looking at the powers between themselves. So I think what we tend to do when we look at an emerging powers is we look at, you know, their relationship with the Middle East, sort yeah. of on, almost on an independent basis. So you'll get a number of volumes that have looked at sort of, you know, Russia's relationship with the with the region, uh, China's relationship with the region, um, India's relationship with the region. But what we don't do so much is sort of look and see what kind of inter what kind of effect those relationships have at a horizontal level, whether sort of, you know, China and India's relationships with a particular country, how that plays out in the country, or between China and India themselves. Yeah. Um, at this point, I'm still sort of, you know, uh, scout, scouring around uh, the nature of India's relationship with the region. And, and I guess what you would find is that there has been sort of an increasingly growing, uh, increasing attention towards the, the, the this West uh, Western perspective. Um, what I would say is that with with India, the there's been um, it's not there's been a lot of attention given to the current Modi government and the fact that there's kind of similarities in a sense you know so, um, you know that a lot of the relationship has developed since he came to power in 2014. Although I think what I've tried to sort of what I've found or at least what I've what I've uncovered at least when looking at the historical uh, historical context is that this really starts before Modi. Um, you know, under previous governments, including the both the previous BJP government as well as Congress governments, we've seen more and more attention given by India towards the Middle East, and obviously with specific attention towards the Gulf. Sure. And yeah. I think that makes sense because you know that is where you know certainly since the 1930s at least there's been a sizable and growing diaspora of Indians that live in the Gulf. 
And it's not simply yet, while obviously much attention is given to sort of those who work in the sort of the lower lower wage, uh, blue collar construction end of the of the of the of the economies in those countries. Increasingly, we're also seeing you know the rise and the emergence of sort of more white collar, more professional uh, Indians working in that part of the world. Whether it's in the bureau in the Gulf bureaucracies themselves or as entrepreneurs, and so they are a significant contributor both to the economies in which they work as well as 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 a source of as as a source of remittances. And um, so the Gulf is important, and then of course. There is, you know, the Gulf and Iran more generally because this is a, you know, like, like China, India is a key sort of oil and gas importer, and so it has a key concern with ensuring sort of regular and reliable sources of of hydrocarbons. Um, but also, I think the the third part of the axis for for India in relation to the Middle East is that of Israel, because of broad, you know, beyond, I guess, sort of, you know, a couple of economies like the UAE. And uh, Qatar and and and, uh, and and Saudi Arabia, it would really be Israel, which is sort of the most high tech, uh, you know, high high value added economy in the region. Yeah. And of course, there's a lot more attention by India and Indian companies to invest, um, sort of in that part in, in startups to you know to engage with uh, sort of you know the the high tech industries in that part of the world, which includes things like artificial intelligence and robotics. It's also an area, by the way, that the Chinese are interested in as well. So the Chinese don't just. Just I mentioned to you that Chinese have these comprehensive strategic partnerships with a number of Arab states. They don't have one with India, but they do have what they call a comprehensive innovation partnership. Right. So I think you know the Chinese, the Indians. There's there's somewhat of an overlap in their interests, in ter- and I guess that interest is primarily in areas like the Gulf and Iran and Israel. Yeah, that that's interesting. And having spent quite a bit of time out in India, I can certainly. Uh, speak to this thought that there is a growing rivalry between the Indians and the mm-hmm. Chinese and and that will certainly drive a great deal of, of their their actions if they see that the Chinese are are, are making hay where they could potentially be making their mm-hmm. own hay. So I think yeah it's it's an interesting thing to explore and I look forward to to seeing what you what you make of it and, and future work guy. Um We've taken up a great deal of your time already, but I have one final question, if I may. Sure. And that is, what's the, what's the perception of all of this external involvement in the Middle East been like amongst the, the inhabitants of the region themselves? I mean, you've obviously spent time out in, in Palestine, in the Gulf, in, in Kurdistan. So can you speak to that at all? Can you speak to the, the local perceptions of this, this external involvement? Mm-hmm. I mean, so when I was writing the book on on, on sort of the BRICS and the Arab-Israeli conflict, um, I found that the you know there seemed to, there was a bit of a disparity, and especially more so when it came to to China. But uh, there was a bit of a disparity between sort of the those is academics on the Israeli side and academics on the Palestinian side who were thinking about this 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 particular topic. Um, if you think about China, there is actually you know quite a, a reasonable uh, community of Israeli sinologists who have been working. Some of them going back decades, and but also sort of a number of uh, you know sort of very sharp um, younger ones who are coming through as well. Um, that said, you know, on the Palestinian side, I, I found it a little bit more difficult to find people who are working primarily on this stuff. Um, I guess you will find them in relation to those who sort of have a historic connection with with China, um, especially sort of those on the political left. 
Right. Um, there are a number of sort of, uh, there are a number of people who are working on sort of India as well. Um, I guess probably more more from a sort of a Gulf perspective. And of course, you're looking at people who are working not just uh, uh, looking at things like migration studies as well. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a great. I mean, it's a, there is a great sort of a general interest, I suppose. Um, one thing that I did find quite useful, and I wrote a piece um, for the Middle East Institute about a year ago, was looking at sort of you know China, public opinion and public opinion towards China in um, in, in the Middle East. And Pew has a you know the Pew Research Institute has has data which uh, along with other material that I was able to get from Zogby, it doesn't answer directly the question, but it gives you some hint and indication of you know how uh, publics in the region uh, view these these rising powers and. It's, I mean, it, you'll find variation. I mean, some who are kind of quite somewhat lukewarm to it, others who are very, very simple, somewhat more sympathetic, uh, others that are sort of quite anti. So if we, if, I mean, I alluded to example, um, sort of the, the Uyghur minority in, 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 in the far west, far yeah. west region of Xinjiang, um, you know, they are, you know, if you go, they're sort of a Turk, they, they, they're, they're Turkic speaking and you, and they have a sizable, um, you know, ex um, emigre community in Turkey. Um, so what you do is what you find actually through the Pew data is actually quite low um, approval of, of, of the Chinese, of, of China in, in the world, uh, in Turkey. So, and I guess the part they, that's to do with sort of that sort of Turkic relationship. So, but I, I think it's still an area that needs a lot more work and a lot more, a lot more, um, you know, analysis. I think part of the problem is that we tend to sort of look at these these countries or, or sort of these external powers really kind of on a state-to-state -state basis. We look at them primarily as kind of external state actors. We haven't really fully engaged with them as you know having an effect, um, you know, in domestic politics. Um, and certainly that's something, I mean, if, I mean, I, of all the countries, I mean, of course, that's somewhat difficult to do in the Middle East, given sort of the, the nature and the political uh, winds that are happening there. Um, but that doesn't mean it's completely impossible. I think you know, in certain certain countries, it's, pop, it's more feasible to do this kind of work. And I'm thinking, you know, in Israel, to some extent, uh, there is some scope for, for looking at the role of, um, you know, diasporas. Um, certainly, I know that there is a community of people who are looking at sort of the Latin American or, or basically sort of the, you know, the Jewish community in Latin America and the Latin American communities in, in Israel. Sure. It's, I think, really, really important and really interesting, given the, the complexities of all of these things and the, the multifaceted causal relationships, particularly as, as political projects become more and more fragile and more and more contested. But something to watch out for, I guess. Anyway, Guy, thank you so much for joining us today. I've, I've learned a lot from talking to you, even more uh, on top of the book as well, of course. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and it's been a real pleasure spending some time with you today. Well, thank you very much. I hope um, best, best of luck with the, with the rest of the work that you do. Thank you very much, Guy, and I look forward to chatting with you again sometime soon. And as always, thank you sure. for listening. Until next time.